0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Cody Kremlin Calvet Vet Podcast. Uh, Today I have a special guest, Clay Conroy is, is it, oh no, it's Conry, Clay Conry is here. Um, He is part of the Working Cows Podcast, one of my favorite podcasts on the net I've got some of my vets totally obsessed with your podcast and
1: um, I just wanted to have you on so you're, you're actually the first guest on the Cody grillllman <laughs> Calvet podcast well Cody it's an honor to be here I appreciate the opportunity and as I always say with my last name I've been called worse so <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah I, I assume as much <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you most of my podcast listeners are just used to me uh, blindly ranting about various aspects that I that I come across but you had this podcast that just made it so fascinating uh to think about the the cattle industry that I just needed to have you on because I like to think I think along the similar lines as you is kind of just challenging the different uh paradigm shifts that that exist within the industry and and thinking outside of the box and and in your podcast you were just essentially challenging uh a, a lot of conventional wisdoms and really challenging guys to be profitable which within the cattle industry is always uh it's almost like a dirty word right like a taboo word to say the word profitability and it's something i rant quite a bit about in terms of of uh you know knowing your break even so i'm a consulting cal and and that, that is always a big challenge of figuring out what your true break-evens are and overall profitability. And there's so many uh, conflating variables when it comes to figuring that out that it's just, yeah, it's a very fascinating conversation. So why don't you introduce yourself, where are you at, and, um, and tell us about why you started the Working Cows podcast and what your goals are with that.
1: Sure. Yeah. So I grew up here in Western South Dakota. I am uh, in the town where I was born and raised in Belfouche, South Dakota, uh, which is a m- town that was named by French fur trappers. So uh, that's why we have the crazy French name and we we pronounce it like a bunch of rednecks, Belfouche. But uh, <laughs> if we were more sophisticated, it would probably be more pretty. But anyway, so uh, this is a town that was built on Ranching, basically, uh, Seth Bullock, if you know anything about the history of Deadwood, South Dakota, Seth Bullock founded this town and built it up as a place where people would ship cows and trail cows into Belfouche and then they would leave here on a rail uh, on a rail car and go to you know packing plants in chicago and and other places farther east. so uh, Bellfouche has always been a ranching town, still is uh, the economics of South Dakota itself are that each of the five sectors of agriculture. Uh, crops, cattle, poultry, swine, uh, each of those five sectors of agriculture themselves bring more money to the state individually than the second biggest uh, pull to the state, which is tourism. So that kind of gives you a picture of what South Dakota is like. It's it's an agricultural economy and it is, uh, lives and dies with the markets and the agriculture uh, that, you know... How people are making money in agriculture, and so that's kind of led me into starting the working cows podcast. I attended uh a A class that just blew my mind. (laughs) It was the High Plains Ranch Practicum and uh, was taught by Aaron Berger and Dallas Mount, both of which have been multiple time guests on the Working Cows podcast. And Dallas is actually now going on to take over Ranching for Profit from Dave Pratt. And so he will be the third owner of Ranching for for Profit in its history. And he is, so that just kind of gives you a picture of where that class was coming from. Right, And so it really just blew my mind on thinking about your ranching operation as a business and all of the things that go along with that. And so that's kind of why I started the podcast is to feature people who have been thinking about their ranching operation as a business. And one of the One of the things that really stuck out to me from that class and has continued to uh, reiterate itself to me, and I don't necessarily think it's just because of a confirmation bias, is that when people start to talk about whether or not their ranch business is cash flowing or is profitable, a lot of times they're leaving out things like depreciation. And depreciation is either the second or third, sometimes even the most expensive uh, expense to a ranching operation. And so when we talk about depreciation, we're talking about depreciation of animals, depreciation of equipment, depreciation of buildings. So a lot of times they're not writing a check for that depreciation, uh, every year, but when they have to replace a tractor, there isn't cash there to do it. There's a, there's another loan from the bank and, and another, you know, they have to go into more debt to replace that tractor. Just as an example of when we talk about a profitable business we're talking about a business that is able to cover even the depreciation that is present in that business and so that's one of the things that really challenged my paradigm early on and uh, has continued to show itself over and over again
0: no that's excellent so yeah that that kind of blends into into the the podcast that that I just absolutely love so you bring in some great guests and you talk about a lot of different things uh on your podcast but but in your episode 72 the the free market capitalism uh was just you kind of rifting just you by yourself in this solo podcast where you could really just kind of groom and and work through your thesis around you know your thoughts on on your ranch essentially being an economy right and that was really fascinating for me uh you know in general i i love economics i love business so to to have someone really just kind of like breaking it down and looking at the system as as an entire sort of economic system as opposed to just you know the the steps that put you put into to to making a cow-calf operation work every single day right instead of just just looking at you know step a and step b and you know start the tractor feed the cows wean the calves uh, sell the calves uh you're looking at it from a very holistic sense and 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 then applying sort of free market principles into your operation. So, so that's where I was hooked when you started talking about, you know, in terms of removing subsidies and, and really having to look at, at uh, what is subsidizing your ranch. So can you, can you talk about your, your concept of, of free market capitalism?
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I, I am an unapologetic fan of the free market. Uh, I actually happen to believe that the free market is capable of providing all the org- organizing infrastructure that is neat necessary in society. But w- so we can apply free market principles to our uh, cowherds and to our businesses, and we can start to look at our businesses not just as one big blob, but as individual silos of enterprises, and we can start to look at those enterprises on their own merits, and we can start to say, what is this enterprise adding to the operation as a whole or the business? That's another one of those things. I wonder if we have fooled ourselves if one of the subsidies that we are adding to our business is to refer to it as as an operation rather than a business, because we we know deep down, maybe in in the subconscious of our mind, that if we were actually running a business, we would be more concerned with profit than we are with uh, lifestyle that we are able to uh, carry out because of our business. So, but we'll get into that later. So, we would look at our, if we were looking at our business, if our, we were looking at our ranches as a business, we would look at the individual enterprises on that operation and we would start to say, is this adding to or taking away from the economic sustainability of this operation? And then, if it is taking away from it, is it something that we can tolerate it taking away from our economic sustainability because it is a benefit to another enterprise is there a a benefit to another enterprise that if we took it away then that benefit then that enterprise would be less economically sustainable than it is and so that's kind of what you're talking about with the holistic approach and so basically I've seen the illustration of uh, like a a children's mobile where you've got a bunch of different uh, individual things hanging down and they spin around you know if you pull on one of those it affects all of them it's going to throw all of them off kilter, and so that's a that's an illustration that Roland Cruz came up with I'll give credit where credit is due another multiple time guest on the Working cows podcast. Roland Cruz came up with that illustration for illustrating it to kids, but it's helpful for everybody to to understand that when we pull on the hay haying enterprise of our business it's going to affect all the other enterprise and when we pull on the cow calf enterprise of our business it's going to affect every other enterprise so we need to consider it as a whole and we need to see which ones are adding the most benefit which ones are an economic loser is there something that we could uh do differently in our management of those operations of those, uh, individual enterprises to make them more beneficial. So that's kind of a, a a broad understanding of how I look at it, uh, from a perspective of economics.
0: Right. So when you're thinking about that, what are, you know, back to this this model of of just kind of the day to day or what are the easy things or the low hanging fruit in terms of these subsidies uh that that we're we're giving cows and that's really affecting our, our bottom line. So you had talked about you know profitability and how that's a function of of your your gross income uh, and expenses. So, just what are your theses around that, and and what are some things that that you see within a traditional cow calf uh, commercial cow calf system that that people should really be focusing on?
1: Well I think that the subsidies uh, are that we subsidize our animals by uh, making feed and supplements available and inputs available to our cow herd. And so what I see happening there is that we're masking the genetic deficiencies of those animals basically. And so uh, we are looking for those animals that are able to survive in our environment, those animals that are able to perform in our environment. And when you start to talk about, I'm going to feed two, tons of hay per animal to get them through the winter, that is a, that's signifying to me that maybe that animal isn't equipped to survive in your environment. And so we're looking for those animals that are genetically adapted to our environment. And if there is less Time of the year when there's standing forage available, uh, then maybe that looks like a little bit smaller animal that can get by, that has a little bit less maintenance requirement. And so I think that some of the subsidies uh, that we that we are looking at adding to our business are those subsidies of feed, those subsidies of of supplements, those subsidies of inputs. And so. Maybe not every single one of those is one that we can take out. Maybe there's going to be some uh, level of us having to have some supplement around, but maybe we don't need every single supplement, and maybe if we would start to take away some supplements here and there— And we would find those cows that were capable of continuing to get bred even without those supplements. We would start to find those animals that are genetically adapted to our environment. And just continue to take a little bit more away and continue to see, is there a benefit? Is there a point at which my breed up suffered so much that the investment of an input would have been worth it? So you could, every animal, you could could get 100% breed up. You'd have a small herd of really fat cows that cost you a whole bunch of money to feed, right? So is there is there a relationship there where you could reduce the, the inputs and the uh, the breed-up percentage wouldn't suffer as much as the cost of those inputs, if that makes right. any really
0: sense? Yeah, no, and I love that. I love that from, from your original podcast, thinking about breed-up. So, uh, you know, and if you... If you want to break that down. So the amount of inputs and efforts that it takes to have to go from 70% of your cows being pregnant to 80% of your cows being pregnant isn't that much, right? we should be able to do that uh with with minimal input. I always equate that to to good grades, the grades needed to to get into vet school. <laughs> so so the amount of effort that it takes to put in to get from a 70% average to an 80% average is is this much, right? It's it's a but then to get that to move that needle from that 80 to 90% when it comes to breed up or when it comes to grades is just is almost exponentially more right it's just that much more, and then to move that from ninety to ninety five percent breed up re- requires that much more effort and inputs and then from from ninety five onwards uh, you know it, the cost associated with that can be absolutely astronomical, which does not at all reflect back in terms of profitability so right. so that's really fascinating but like how do you how do you really work through that and objectively assess that in terms of (laughs) of the work and the effort that that's going into that 70 to 80% change in, in breed up to 80 to 90%. How do you work through all that?
1: Well, first of all, I will just give a shout out to somebody who's doing a great job of, uh, taking away those inputs that maybe aren't necessary, and that's Shannon and Melinda Sims. They're in McFadden, Wyoming. They're ranching in some real high, dry country. They've got a 40 to 45 day growing season for their grass if they're lucky. And so they have been able to take it to the point where they've taken away enough inputs that if they have a cow who makes it into the herd. And by that, I mean, they expose every animal, every female on their place. They expose to breeding. All the heifers born get exposed to breeding. And so she gets bred. She makes it into the herd. The the most expensive animal on your place to lose is almost always going to be that second calf heifer. If she's gotten bred once and then she comes out and she comes up open the second time, that's a very expensive animal to lose because you've spent all that development money getting her into the herd and then she doesn't get bred that second time and you, she falls out of the herd and she becomes uh, a very expensive animal to lose. So they've gotten their costs down to the point that they can even lose a second he- calf heifer and sell her as a kill cow and she's still profitable. So that's just a throw that out there that that's a possibility. And people who are ranching in difficult environments with very little rainfall, very deep snow in the wintertime, uh, they've figured out ways to cut costs to the point that that second calf heifer can still be sold for a profit uh, even after uh, she's fallen out of the herd. So how do we go about doing it though? To answer that question. I think that we've got to be, as you said, objective. We another subsidy. So I've talked about the subsidies of making feed supplements and inputs inputs in general available to your cow herd. Another subsidy that we often give to our animals is uh sentimental subsidies.
0: Right. Yes. <laughs> All the time. Right. I always I always panic when I have to preg test a cow that has a name. <laughs>
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, no. She's bread. She's bread. She, if she, she comes up, she doesn't have a calf. It's because she slept it. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It wasn't me. Uh, So no, but sentimental subsidies, you know, we can, we can say, just for an example, how many times have you heard someone say this? Ranching isn't a get rich kind of an operation. It's a, it's a lifestyle. Yeah. All the time. Right. Yeah. And so how about this? How many people are subsidizing their ranch business with land that's already paid for? Yeah. Could they be paid more to have somebody else's cows eat that grass than they are paid to have their own cows eat that grass? Absolutely. So how many people are even doing that economic analysis? How many people are even willing to say, I don't, I'm okay with not having my own cows on this grass. I want somebody else's cows on this grass because it's more profitable to me. But that's not
0: romantic, right?
1: (laughs) yeah but neither is going broke right? <laughs> i i don't know sometimes it is right
0: that, that's oh, uh romance is what i always say is the greatest subsidy of the cattle industry and that's mm-hmm. why vertical integration doesn't exist because cargill can't do it cheaper than somebody who's romantic
1: mm. yeah for sure Absolutely. <laughs> so no that's and that's exactly what i'm talking about you know these people that are that are subsidizing their ranching business with these sentimental subsidies and, and saying, it's not a get rich kind of a deal. It's a lifestyle, uh, or getting attached to one cow who raised the calf, a big calf one year, rather than saying, if you don't show up bred, you're out. You know, there's just no questions asked. That's our bottom line. Uh, metric is breed up. If you're bred, you get to stay. If you're not bred, You leave. And so, you know, we... You got to be kind of that cold, heartless person who makes those decisions based on a bottom line economics type of an analysis rather than saying, oh, you can stay because of whatever, you're gentle, you're nice, you know, whatever. And so, you know, those are some considerations, uh, uh, you know, personal safety, personnel safety is is a legitimate consideration. And if she requires special attention, even if that special attention is knowing when to avoid her, maybe she needs to leave. But uh, so those, I think the sentimental subsidies are a big one and we romanticize owning the land and owning the cows to the point that it's almost impossible to get started in this industry. And I think if people were willing to look at the industry a little bit more objectively uh, that maybe those, maybe that's an opportunity that could be realized by younger people who could come in and offer uh, to graze other people's cows on other people's land and still have some margin left over and that might sound crazy but I know people who are doing it in very expensive grass country in the sand hills of Nebraska and making more money doing it that way than they did when they were grazing their own cows on their own land so
0: right from from a I'll, I'm gonna spin this a little bit more on the veterinary side so from a health perspective, Level, you know, some of the greatest things that I think that that we've ever done from from a health perspective is is mineral um, supplementation. So a shift away from from salt blocks to actual good quality mineral uh, that that is available to cows, essentially year round. Uh, from this isn't talking about profitability, but just from a health standpoint has has really moved the needle forward. So far less down cows, less uterine prolapses, uh, better, potentially better feet, um, you know, better hoof structure, better health, uh, less, um, calves with weak calf syndrome, white muscle disease, those, those types of issues. So it's always a very difficult one to talk about pulling mineral back in terms of a supplementation because it, it, I, it really has improved overall health.
1: Right. You know, and, and I honestly, I'm not saying that you should not supplement your cows at all. What I'm saying is that you should look at the herd and say, Let's find the animals in this herd that can survive on less supplementation, not that we don't supplement them at all, but let's find the animals that can survive on less supplementation and let's find the supplements that give us the most bang for our buck. You know, if, if a good mineral package is going to give us, uh, uh, you know, that 70 to 80 percent jump let's do it. If that good mineral package is going to give us that 80 to 90% jump, let's do it. But let's examine the cost. Is, is the 80, 90, 80 to 90% breed up jump worth the investment of that mineral? Or are we just throwing mineral out there because that's what grandpa did.
0: Right. So if- and, and there even is some romance associated with that mineral as well. Like, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with like the cardio emerald mineral. It's just, it just looks really nice it's a very pretty green color so you know there's even some romance associated with that how about when it comes to preg testing okay so so there is an argument depending on the the markets and sometimes i run through the spreadsheet with with our producers depending on what the call markets look like and the calf markets look like and feed availability so how do you approach preg testing? Uh, when do, do, you, do you, is preg testing common in that area? How do you objectively assess whether or not you should be preg testing? What are your thoughts around that?
1: I know people that don't do it. Um, one of Another one of the guests, <laughs> just to turn back, is Brock Terrell. Uh, and he's, you know, basically they breed their cows to calve between, uh, I think, May 20th and August. <laughs> so huge, long, long breeding cycle. But, depending on when their grass runs out and depending on the markets that they've got available after a certain date, they're just going to be done calving and all those cows are going to go to the sale barn. And if some of them are bred, then they get more for those animals that are bred. And if some of them are open, then they've figured out a way to cut their costs to the point that that animal can still be a profitable animal. So I know that there's an argument for not doing it. I know that there is uh, that those people out there who've organized their businesses in such a way that it is uh, something that they are able to get away with. And it's just, you, you've made the herd, you calved before this certain date, you were able to get bread on, on what was available to you here. And so this is, this is your meal ticket, basically your ticket to ride your, your admission into the ranch business is that you had a calf before this certain date.
0: Right. Yeah. So there's this, this very interesting, and I'm not saying it's perfect, but there's this interesting spreadsheet. And I'm sure other spreadsheets exist, but this one is by the Beef Cattle Research Council, uh, essentially this research council up here in Canada that, that allows you to put in a whole bunch of different metrics in and, and makes it customized to your specific herd and it shows you whether or not the based on the spreadsheet, it looks like it's worth preg testing or not. So Mm -hmm. I I certainly don't advocate um, to preg test in every situation. You know, that's part of how, you know, part of my job, part of how I pay the bills is is preg testing. But I don't think it is for everybody. I think that you should be doing a very objective assessment of of preg testing based off of all the different variables there is for your ranch. But I feel like sometimes that decision is based off of fear, right? That like <laughs> that just that not knowing of what if this is the wreck year and what if I'm carrying, you know, 30% of my cows, what if my preg test rate was 70% pregnant and I'm carrying through these 30% of cows and I don't even know it and, and I'm, I'm feeding those out. Right. So it's not even based off an economic uh, assessment. It's just, it's fear-based or they're just tradition right it's just like something that we've always done everybody gets together and you have a few beers after and you have a nice have a nice lunch and everybody goes around and helps the neighbors and you don't want to be that crazy guy that's just like no i'm not practicing this year why did i practice this year feed feeds cheap uh call you know call prices look like they're going to be pretty good um you know why don't i just let it roll this year
1: Absolutely. And so one thing I do want to say by way of clarification is that these, when I talk about people who aren't examining their ranch businesses and, and aren't examining every input, these aren't character judgments. <laughs> if ranching makes you happy with inputs and happy fat cows make you happy, then go for it. you know. But what I'm t- trying to do is true challenge paradigms for people who are trying to eke out margin in this industry, who are trying to get started from nothing and just to give them some, tools that maybe they could put into place on their ranch business that could help them get started because uh, startup is an incredibly capital intensive. I should say traditional startup is an incredibly capital intensive endeavor and so for people to get started maybe they just need to look at the industry a little bit differently and look at themselves as a middleman rather than as the owner for the first few years until they can save up the capital to get started rather than being saddled with debt uh from the start and having to make a payment and ha- being forced by a make a banker to make decisions rather than being forced by what's best for this business to make decisions.
0: Right, for sure. Um from from that from that um you know sort of free market approach just we talked about Preg testing. What are your thoughts around semen testing? So, do you think that that there that's an e- economically viable uh, thing that we should be doing? Should we be assessing that every year within the moment? Uh, because once again, there's an argument, and you know, I'm kind of arguing myself against myself as a veterinarian who provides semen testing services. But once again, sometimes semen testing is uh, is more of an insurance policy, risk mitigation policy than it is actually assessing true fertility in an animal right we're just making sure that that they're they're reproductively sound but we're not assessing libido so we're mitigating disasters that okay so half your bulls have some sort of uh you know issue or defect and, and maybe that prevents a disaster but there's also an argument on the other side that that isn't just another input that you need to you need to assess based off of what your ranch strategy is so so do you do you semen test do you is that common in your area? And is it something that you look at and assess?
1: Well, we have semen tested when there was an issue, like when we had some calves that were born that didn't quite look right and were, you know, uh, we we semen tested them, we genetically tested that calf, and then we traced it back to the bull. But that was an after-the-fact deal because we had a number of calves that looked similar that were uh, born either dead or or never stood up, never got up, and then they died. And so that was something that we did. But here's, here's a paradigm challenge, just to go back to the theme of my podcast, is... Uh, what about, rather than the investment, and, and I don't know what the investment is on, on this side of it, but what about the investment of... Genetically testing your calves and seeing which bull was responsible for that calf. I wonder how many times people would be surprised by how many lazy bulls they have. Kind of like what you said. We're not assessing libido. How many lazy bulls do I have? Would the, would the investment, would the, would the money spent on genetically testing those calves be worth knowing that one of my bulls only bred this many cows or one of my bulls bred, you know, this huge percentage, he, he, he outpaced the rest of them and then finding those bulls that are willing to work and that do have high libido and high energy and able to maintain their body condition through the beating breeding season and are breeding just as many cows at the end of the breeding season as they were at the beginning. Would that would money, would that money be better spent than on semen testing? It's just a question, but I think it's one that's worth entertaining
0: absolutely and and i've i've certainly chased down that um that trail and i i'm fully all in on parentage testing so when it comes to genomics uh, and genomic testing looking for different markers i be- i believe that genomics is going to be the one of the the big, great breakthroughs in terms of beef cattle production. I just think it's too early stage right now. It's so early stage that I don't think that most people can capitalize on doing, you know, full genomic testing in their herd. But I believe in genomics. Like in 40 years, um, it it will be so cheap and it'll be so common and we'll be able to identify so many different markers. So, So that's, you know, that's one thing. But in terms of parentage, I absolutely love that idea. I've I've come across that uh, somebody presented the idea in terms of parentage testing, and 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 then objectively looking at what your bulls are doing, you can very easily uh, see you know percentage wise what that specific bull is doing in terms of of getting those cows bred, and then you're also really able to then look at those calves weaning weights if you're doing individual weaning weights and look at that bull's actual uh profitability with within your specific herd so i think you can make some real powerful uh decision making based off of just looking at that specific you know looking at those bulls in terms of parentage the problem is but i think i have a solution the problem is 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 cost right the the cost of of Doing parentage on every single animal, but I don't think we have to do it on every single animal. I think we can use statistics as our friend to be able to do a subset of our calf population. So we would do genomics, uh, we do parentage uh, DNA on all of our bulls, and then we would essentially just be able to work out um, uh, statistically what the number would be that we need to sample from the calf populations for each sort of breeding group. So there is some difficulties with that in terms of if we have um you know smaller groups but but i think we can work our way through that so essentially what i'm saying is is let's say we have four bulls and they're distributed evenly against 30 cows uh You don't have to test each, you know, each one of those 120 calves to get an answer as to what those bulls actually did. You'll only need to do about 20% if you look at the stats. So instead of doing 30 30 calves, 30 calves, 30 calves, 30 calves, you would only have to do 20% of 30 calves and you would get a pretty good answer as to what's going on.
1: Hmm. Very good. You know, and you know, what are we talking about here? We're talking about introducing competition into our uh, our ranch businesses. So what, what determines whether or not a business is going to survive or fail in a free market system? It's competition, that they are competing with other businesses, providing similar services and products. And if they do it better and cheaper, their business is more sustainable and they will be able to survive. Now, that's why i I dislike subsidies because that distorts the market. You don't get to tell who's actually profitable. And so when we start to introduce competition into our cow herd, we get to see which one of those cows is actually profitable. When we start to introduce competition, competition into our bull herd. We get to see which one of those bulls is actually working for us and providing us the most bang for our buck. Uh, When we start to introduce competition into our enterprises within our business mix, then we get to see which one of those enterprises is a loser and which one of those enterprises is a winner. And we get to do more of what wins and we get to do less of what loses. And hopefully that increases overall profitability, which maybe means we can afford to have another family on the ranch. We can bring Junior back to the ranch and he can Start to uh, build his nest egg to take over from mom and dad in the second generation and we can get more and more families into ranching and maybe we can avoid that total vertical integration like you said where the Packers just own everything and it's still a family business
0: absolutely i love the analogy so the semen test is essentially the high school diploma <laughs> and the parentage testing and, and economic assessment is the true competition right it's right. the semen test is the baseline to, to that gets you in the game but that maybe necessarily doesn't get to keep you in the game oh, i i absolutely love that um when it comes to so so you you've said it very well and i just kind of want to end on you know, in, in terms of the future, I, I always love thinking about the future, right? So in terms of the future, from your perspective, where do you see this industry going? And and, and based off of, you know, all kinds of factors like land price and, and how difficult the, the, this endeavor is, even when you do have access to, to family land and, you know, different, different generations of risk that have been assumed. Uh, If if you're a new guy starting out in the ranching world, do you think you can make a go of it? And and if you can, where do you see the the future of this industry going?
1: So if you want negative fear-based reasoning, you can turn on the radio and get that. I'm not here to give that to you. So I absolutely think you can make a go of it. Okay? I think you can do it. I think you're going to have to think differently than other people did. Your grandpa saw, or at least here in in South Dakota, our our grandparents' generation saw a 1,000x appreciation of the land asset. Our parents probably saw a 10x appreciation of the land asset. And so we're probably not going to get that subsidy. Let's just be real. Let's be honest. That's probably not going to happen again. It's not going to be available to us. But we do have opportunities to think differently and to manage our ranch businesses differently and it starts with the three secrets of increasing profit dave pratt i'm just taking this right from him uh, first of all we reduce overheads we find those animals that can perform on fewer inputs uh, we figure out ways to feed cows with a tractor that isn't bright green i know that's a shock but it's possible <laughs> but you know maybe it is and we figure out ways to reduce those overheads another thing that we have to do to increased profit is to increase gross margin. So we reduce the inputs and that all uh has a relationship to the gross margin of that animal that there is more margin there if there are fewer inputs. It's just simple math. And here's where I challenge your paradigm. I'm sorry, Cody, but I'm gonna go there. We increase turnover. And maybe that means when when the when the when the supply of forage on our ranch is at its highest, we're bringing in other animals from outside the business to graze that to maximize the stock. Don't say rate sheep. Don't up. say sheep. <laughs> Okay, I won't say sheep, but maybe there's another, there's another, there's another species of animals that could come in and help you maximize the standing forage available on your ranch. And so just get creative, because obviously it can't be sheep.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it can be sheep. We just have to watch out for malignant catarrhal fever. Always enough always a risk that we have to uh, try to mitigate. I just don't want to be a sheep bed. I love sheep. I just don't want to have to like show up at the prank test. And while you're here, doc, can you look at my sheep? (laughs) (laughs) But I get it. I totally get it.
1: Well I mean the the economics of sheep is is a pretty exciting deal you know just on the wool alone you're looking at sometimes in the neighborhood of a $20,000 net profit uh just on the wool of that animal not to mention the two young that she produces if you're willing to go into an accelerated lambing type of a a situation. So it's just, it's, it's economics. It's making an unbiased, unemotional decision saying, this is what this animal is capable of doing. Do I have any cows that are capable of this kind of gross margin? It doesn't look like it. Maybe I should think about sheep.
0: Sorry, okay, I said sheep. we can we can think about sheep. Sheep is another four-letter word, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, yep, it is. Yep. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I, I do love it. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Um, I appreciate it so much. Uh, so please check out Clay's uh, podcast, Working Cows podcast. Uh, you've got a lot of episodes up these days, so you've been really hustling on it. Uh, I assume it is everywhere that podcasts can be found, correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn. It's everywhere. Workingcows.net slash subscribe. There's a place there. It lists them all. And so you can go there and pick your uh, platform of choice and and you'll be able to grab it there. So appreciate the opportunity, Cody.
0: Excellent. No, I thank you so much. And I'll include uh, the the website in the show notes. And I assume
1: that's how people
0: can contact you if they have any questions as well.
1: There's a contact page there, workingcows.net contact, and and I try to respond to every email. Uh, They're coming at a good pace, but I do try to get back to everyone.
0: Excellent. Well, keep up the good work. We certainly need more great content out there just to educate uh, cattle producers. And
1: you are doing a fantastic job. So one thing real quick on that is that we do need a sheep podcast. I know, I know <laughs> <you're>, <laughs> because m- that sheep episode that I just did, workingcows.net slash uh, 74, that sheep episode got some incredible engagement. And it just oh, proved to me that we need a sheep podcast. I don't have time to do it and I don't have the knowledge to do it i'm swimming beyond my depth sometimes with cows and so we need a sheep podcast so there's got to be somebody out there that can do it
0: right so i'm gonna challenge maybe i should challenge uh, sandy brock out of ontario have you came across sandy's vlogs not yet it's called sheepishly me, uh, check them out on YouTube. So sheepishly me, Sandy is a a large sheep producer in Ontario and she's been vlogging her little heart out over the last couple of years. Uh, I think she's got over a hundred episodes and she certainly provides some great value there, but, uh, sounds like we do need a working sheep podcast. (laughs) Uh, you might, you might have started this, this whole network and, and, uh, I've been getting inundated with requests for me to become a bee veterinarian as well. There's been so many call-ins of people who want me to be the bee expert of Alberta on top of that.
1: So, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's the ethos of the working cows podcast <laughs> is that we're putting those cows to work for us. That's what that's really why I chose that name is that no. we're putting those cows to work for us uh and and then we're thinking differently about how we work for them. So uh the working sheep podcast I I will not I will not trademark it. They can have it. Take it. Do it.
0: Okay. So we'll have working bees, working sheep, working <laughs> goats, working alpacas. You you have you have now um, successfully created an empire.
1: As long as they're as long as we're not working for them, they're working for us. <laughs> let's, ha- let's have it. <laughs> okay.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for for coming on.
1: Thanks, Cody.